Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. I apologize for the wretched state of my voice. I've had a nasty cold all week. Must be that immune deficit. The usual two for the price of one today. We'll hear from the education journalist Jennifer Berkshire and what the right is up to with the schools after the hit their agenda took in the recent elections. And then Jody Dean will talk about a book she co-edited on the writings of early and mid-20th century black communist women. The right ran hard on the anti-woke agenda in the recent midterm elections and mostly didn't do very well. A focal point was the schools, where in their fevered view, a hardened band of cultural Marxists, led by Teachers Union President Randy Weingarten, who actually on planet Earth is a Hillary Clinton Democrat, are indoctrinating kids into becoming anti-white and non-binary. The other day, I saw my next guest, Jennifer Berkshire, retweeting, yeah, I'm still on Twitter, why cede the space to the right, some insane and violent comments from right-wingers that read like declarations of war on Weingarten and her militant brigade. And I'm serious about war. There was a real violent and threatening tone to the tweets. What's up here? Here to explain is the education journalist and frequent behind-the-news guest, Jennifer Berkshire. Jennifer is co-author, along with Jack Schneider, of the book Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School, published by the New Press. She's also co-host, also Schneider, of the podcast Have You Heard? Jennifer Berkshire. Those tweets you had about Randy Weingarten and the teachers, uh, Jennifer, are really frightening. Are the right-wingers really got uh, the teachers' union in their literal sites, not just their political sites, but there seem to be an undercurrent of violence in some of their discourse? Yeah, so the last time you and I talked, we talked about a book called The Battle for the American Mind by a gentleman named Pete Hegseth, who's a Fox News host. And if you go back and take a look at that book, he explains that you know they picked the title, The Battle, very strategically. He actually makes the case that the right needs to be prepared to play the role of insurgents akin to the Taliban when it comes to our public schools, because our public schools have been completely taken over by cultural Marxists. In order to make sense of this kind of martial or military turn in the rhetoric, you have to try to see the world through the eyes of these folks. And just go back to the midterms. You probably saw the breakdown in the vote total, you know, based on the ages of voters. And so you look at people who voted at Arizona State and something like 4% of them voted for Carrie Lake. These guys are looking around and they feel like they're losing the kids. And so if they're gonna seize the tools of indoctrination, they're going to have to go to battle against the schools. And so I think that's sort of the larger context for what really does seem like a stepped-up rhetoric. We saw this after the um, the shooting in Colorado Springs. I saw a whole lot of right-wing figures making excuses for it, saying, well, you know, I guess uh, shooting is wrong, but, you know, drag queen story hour is really bad. They're normalizing violence in a way that it seems even a departure for them. Yes, I think you're totally right. I think that we have to make sense of this by looking at what's happening on the right more generally. However poorly the post-Dobbs moment may have fared at the polls in November, there are a lot of people on the right who see the Supreme Court rollback on abortion as a sign that it's now possible to roll back all kinds of things. And so even though, you know, they're obsessed with trans stuff, a conservative friend of mine told me about going to an event at the Heritage Foundation and how he was just shocked at the sort of the level of obsession that people had with trans stuff. You know, it's not just trans stuff. It's now, you know, like they sense that they can roll back the markers of progress on gay rights more generally. Anytime there's an effort to roll back the limits of what's considered acceptable behavior, you are going to have these threats of violence moving alongside that. People read the election as rejection of far right in a lot of cases. You know, Trump candidates lost, uh, the election deniers lost. How did the right take this? And what, what, what's their reaction to what seems to be a popular rejection of their point of view? 
I would say that for the most part, the attempts to gin up the culture war and move parents to the Republican column were were not successful. To the extent that they that the Republicans really got anywhere, they were able to re-elect Republicans. But if you look at a state like Michigan, they went all in on the culture war stuff. They ran the Christopher Rufo playbook. He basically guided the Republican opponent, Tudor Dixon, who ran against Gretchen Whitmer. And the Republicans ended up losing everywhere. You know, they lost the House, they lost the Senate, but they lost all kinds of other things too. In some ways, I think that the amped up rhetoric on the right is a response to the fact that they did poorly. People had an opportunity to vote on what they were offering. And it's not like they're now going back to the drawing board and saying, you know what? We really need to moderate. We need to stop warning that kids in schools are using litter boxes. Um, Instead, you hear them basically saying, you know what? Maybe the electoral route isn't going to work for us. Maybe instead we need to, uh, you know, sort of like shake our fists and go after Randy Weingarten. I was watching an interview with Joe Walsh, who I used to think of as a right-wing loon. But he said, my former party has become an outright fascist party. He said they're just overtly anti-democratic. And he used the word fascist, which is something that you should be only like nutty leftists would say. I mean, I think that's a fair characterization. It is interesting the extent to which they seem increasingly comfortable with all of this stuff. So, you know, like waiting for, you know, like day after day for voices within the Republican Party to condemn Trump for meeting with Nick Fuentes. So I just finished reading Robert Draper's new book, and a lot of it chronicles sort of Marjorie Taylor Greene's rise. And, you know, there's this moment where it seems like perhaps she's going to pay a price for going and speaking at Nick Fuente's conference. And ultimately, she pays no price at all. In fact, she now seems to be sort of catapulting into the Republican leadership. I think it's absolutely true that they feel more comfortable with this stuff and that the schools play an absolutely essential role here. So what is it about the schools that is so central to them? Part of it is that they're they're convinced that they lost the culture war in the schools. And so you'll often hear them point to the marker of the Supreme Court striking down school prayer. That happens and within 20 years we've got, you know, gay marriage, we've got what they call cultural Marxism. But that's like, what, 50, 60 years ago? I know. When was the last time you even heard people talk about school prayer? And apparently it's loomed large for these guys low these many years. And now, you know, it's one of many cultural markers that they think they have an opportunity to roll back. The school. So that's where um, the children are indoctrinated? Is that what's going on? So that's a piece of it. But I think the big picture part that people don't always see is that Schools are really the terrain on which civil rights are both defended, but also expanded. That's been the real story of American public education over the last sort of 50 years has been the expansion of civil rights. And so if you pay attention to what the Biden folks are doing, they feel like they have an obligation to continue to expand that, right? So the next piece is to expand Title IX, to include the rights of trans kids. And so this is gonna erupt basically into an all out war because you have conservative states saying that we don't believe in those rights. We're actively trying to roll those rights back. And so we're seeing a split along red and blue lines. So much of this has to do with the fact that, that schools are just absolutely at the center of the battle over civil rights. And a big part of what conservatives want to do right now is to say that the revolution of civil rights went too far and that we're actually going to start to roll some of that back. I was just reading the uh, Tuesday morning edition of Los Angeles Times' California Politics newsletter, and they're reviewing the fact that a bunch of right-wing loons lost local school board elections. But that's not discouraging the right. And uh, quoting from the article, they're hoping to harness any lingering COVID-19 frustrations and have adopted a broad parental rights motto that on its face would seem to appeal to even Democratic voters. A couple of parts here. First of all, lingering COVID-19 frustrations. The New York City school system reopened well over a year ago, partly a year and a half ago. How lingering are these frustrations? 
that was the playbook that conservatives were using for the entire midterm cycle. And I had my doubts from the beginning because the only examples they ever seemed to be able to point to were Virginia and San Francisco, the San Francisco school board. And that when you dug into school board races around the country, for every example where somebody was running against COVID mitigation or critical race theory, you know, I could point to not just individual races, but whole states where these candidates were falling flat. And then when you looked at like the way that people voted in the midterms, some of the suburban counties in a place like Wisconsin, for example, where Republicans tried the very hardest to gin up the kind of culture war at the school board level, they made the biggest swings back towards Democrats in the most recent cycle. This tells me that this playbook has been really oversold. So I would think that based on the description that you read from that piece, that's not the thing that's going to do it. But it doesn't mean that the polarization isn't there. And it doesn't mean that this isn't a really effective way to get people into a political project, you know, especially considering how divided we are and how divided we are about not just trans kids, but increasingly what role should schools play in bringing together a diverse group of kids? And we basically don't agree on anything right now. And what about the parental rights angle? Um, What do they mean by that? And how could they lure Democrats to vote for them under that rubric? So there was some all sorts of interesting polling that came out after the midterm cycle, because, you know, you had a lot of people wondering, like, well, why? Why did Republicans fare so poorly in some of these states? And in, you know, Michigan, part of their post-election analysis was that that the Republicans basically spent all of their ad time talking about trans athletes. This didn't resonate with folks at all. And so if you look at the polling that came out after that, that was absolutely the case, that even Republican voters say that they they care very little about the issue of trans athletes, for example, parental rights polls quite poorly. That is not an issue that is going to continue to expand and attract new voters, especially as it gets associated with more and more extreme stuff. What do they mean by that, though? Basically, it's the rights of some parents to determine what gets taught in schools and how kids are treated in schools. And increasingly, it's bound up with the Supreme Court's sort of really extreme definition of religious freedom. And so your freedom of religion could be violated by the very presence of a trans student in a school um, because you have a biblically based, based worldview that doesn't recognize the existence of trans kids. So requiring that your kids have to use pronouns, for example, is now defined as a violation of your religious freedom. And you're starting to see this, what seems to me like such an extreme vision of the world, making its way into policy. So this is kind of the the basis for Glenn Youngkin's new model policy about trans issues in the Virginia schools. The decision about how to handle trans kids is not just left up to individual schools and teachers within those schools, but the parents in that school community. And so that's kind of what parents' rights means. The more it's associated with religion, and the more it's associated with things that look a lot like bullying, the less appeal it has. And I think you're starting to see this where you know, there's been a lot of attention paid to places where a parents' rights crew gets elected to a school board and the next thing that happens is chaos. There just is not a big constituency for that. We are at the beginning stages of a, a real backlash against the, the parents' rights movement. I'm speaking with the education journalist Jennifer Berkshire. It's not just the decadent metropolitan areas where there are trans kids. They're just everywhere. They are just everywhere. And the, you know, the places where these battles are being fought out often in really, you know, just like visceral and heartbreaking ways are in places, they're in schools in rural Wisconsin, right? And so you have this explosive dynamic where Schools are trying to respond to what they see in front of them. And they're in these environments that are now incredibly polarized. You have the Biden folks saying that we're going to 
make the expansion of trans kids' rights, you know, basically part of federal law. And so that too is really given given the right and the culture warriors just an endless supply of tinder for these culture wars. LA Times article, but I've seen this elsewhere. You know, the the right is making new efforts at, at school board elections. Um, I don't know how new these are. I mean, I, I, an old friend of mine who used to study the right wing recalled computer models that they had set up of districts in like the middle of nowhere in Kansas in the late seventies, early eighties that they were going to target. It was a rainy night somewhere in Kansas. They were going to pack the meeting with their people. I mean, this goes back 40 years or so. And How much progress have they made over that time? It's an interesting dynamic because it is really old. And I think part of the pendulum that you see is that is the goal to bring right-wing views back into the schools or is the goal to nudge kids out of the schools? So if you read Pete Hegseth's book, um, they're arguing that the it's over, right? The public schools are over and what they want is a retreat. But if you look at the policies of, say, Ron DeSantis, he's really proceeding along both fronts. They're increasingly comfortable using the levers of state power to you know, punish their enemies and drive a particular vision of morality through the schools. But then they're also, their goal is to nudge as many kids out of the schools as possible. So the, the next big political battle is going to be over private school choice in Texas, partly because Texas is so big, right? 10% of all the kids in the country are in Texas. The new head of heritage, Kevin Roberts, comes from Texas expanding private school choice in Texas is one of his top priorities. And so you're going to really see these two, what seem to be contradictory moves playing out side by side. Is our goal to force kids to experience the patriotic curriculum? Or is our goal to get them into Christian schools and pay for that with taxpayer dollars? Well, that too goes back, you know, to the uh, the wake of Brown v. Board of Education when they started the white flight schools. Uh, I mean, do they feel like that the fight of uh, 60 years is finally bearing fruit? It's so true. I was thinking about that. I was just reading that great piece that Catherine Joyce wrote. The takeaway is that basically whatever language we were hearing about populism and the new right really does feel like the kind of Reagan era consensus is just reemerging in a different form. All of the education policies that Heritage, for example, is driving are all leftovers from the Reagan administration. School vouchers, the whole idea of an education savings account, that comes straight out of the Reagan era. And you know that's exactly the policy that these folks are pushing today. The cause is really old. They just find new stuff to attach it to. Critical race theory is like the reincarnation of uh, forced integration in 1954 or 5. Absolutely. And I think what's so interesting is how quickly critical race theory has fallen by the wayside. You know, you hardly ever hear about it anymore, that they've so moved on to what they call gender ideology. I was listening in on this meeting of private school folks, and these are folks who are really upset about how woke the private schools are. And this woman who's part of this organization called Parents Defending Education was bemoaning the fact that, you know, it's been so hard to get parents to rise up against excessive wokeness in their schools. She feels like, you know, probably the reason is that they feel too guilty to do that. But just wait till they find out that all the schools are trying to turn their kids trans. That will really do it. And so you, you've seen these groups kind of shift on a dime away from the critical race theory exposés into the gender ideology exposés. The risk of that is that it just starts to seem like they're moving from issue to issue. And each as, as the rhetoric gets more extreme, each amping up of the rhetoric loses a few more people. What's next? You know, they go to uh, school board meetings with AR-15s, and uh, I guess they're already doing that. Yeah, yeah. That's part of it. But that also lost a lot of people that, you know, when the Proud Boys started showing up at school board meetings in Florida and people started to see that this movement was really just, you know, the menace was not hard to find. That lost a lot of people. I'm particularly interested in these stories where folks are voting down these school board candidates for precisely those reasons. 
where folks in conservative areas are looking at this stuff and saying, we do not want these kind of candidates around our kids. It's so easy to just read nothing but terrible news stories that confirm your worst suspicions of, you know, how backward people are, how racist people are. But, you know, the reality is that these candidates overall did not do very well in the midterms. And we need to understand why, because that's going to help us fight this stuff on a bigger scale. But that's just going to um, prompt their secession from the broader society, isn't it? That's really the big question right now. And that comes back to that question you were asking about fascism. And, you know, like, to what extent is the lesson for some, that some of these people are taking away that, you know what, we tried democracy and it really didn't work. And so instead, we're just going to pursue our unpopular agenda via extra electoral means. And, you know, you really see that in the education world, that decade after decade, the effort to try to convince people to walk away from their schools and blow them up has not been successful to the extent that that the right has been successful in expanding things like school vouchers. This time around, it's, you know, it's mostly because they've figured out some sneaky legislative end run that the public can't touch. You mentioned this earlier, Catherine Joyce's article uh, about the crack up on the right. And let's just return to that uh, to close. There's just something of a schism between the culture warriors and this pseudo-populist wing oh, that's all about the working class. How does that figure into the school battles? I think the school battles are going to remain really large because Ron DeSantis is going to remain really large. And in many ways, he is precisely the candidate who embodies what you were just talking about, that his populism is almost entirely fake, that, you know, it's railing against corporations for being excessively woke. Um, But can you think of, is there a worse state in the union to be a worker? Florida is a hellhole. Workers have almost no rights at all. And so to me, like his- That's freedom. (laughs) It's it's the, the freedom to earn almost nothing. To me, his ascendancy is just going to drive that, like any pretense that these guys were really populists is going to fall away. And I think that matters with the school stuff because the schools will remain this site of, you know, perpetual culture war. But I also thought that one of the big contradictions was that they're going so hard after rural schools that they really feel like they have now made religious school choice and private school choice a litmus test issue for Republicans, like abortion. And so, but if you look at these rural areas, schools are the largest employers. And so how is it that you're kind of making this populist argument that, that you know, the working class has been left behind, rural America has been left behind, and then your answer is that you're going to go really hard at the largest employer in the county. It never made any sense. And I think that as the populist rhetoric falls away, you're just going to see more and more culture war stuff and more intensification of the anti-LGBTQ stuff. And all of that will be really intensely focused on the schools. Yeah, I mean, that stuff is really ugly and revolting, but um, how politically resonant is it? I think an awful lot of people either don't care or just you know believe in tolerance, let people live their lives. It always seemed weird to me that Florida would turn out to be such a center of that because, you know, if you've gone to Florida, it's full of gay people, right? Like that, you know, like gay people go there to vacation. You can walk down the beach in Miami and suddenly come upon a gay nude beach. So I, I never quite understood like why, like why make that the hill to die on? But a lot of people are going to insist that Florida proves to us that the Christopher Rufo playbook works, that that is how you win elections. So I would point to a state like Michigan and say, actually, here's a state that shows you exactly the opposite. Really, the question is going to be going forward who's right? That the LA Times article we've been talking about says that to a large extent, Republicans, including mainstream Republicans, are convinced that there is still electoral goal to be mined through the culture war and through parents' rights. But there were plenty of elections where folks ran that stuff really hard and they came up short. So I think the answer is we're going to have to wait and see. That was the education journalist, Jennifer Berkshire. 
You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall. Just to be clear, I don't agree with the drift of the lyrics. I like schools, education, and think we could all use more of them. I just think it's catchy and funny. Next, black communist women from the last century. My next guest, Jody Dean, another behind-the-news regular, is co-editor, along with Sharice Burden-Stelly, of Organized Fight Win, a collection of black communist women's writings from the late 1920s into the early 1950s. They were supposed to do this interview jointly, but Cherise Burden-Stelly, an associate professor of Africana Studies at Wayne State University, was too sick to do it and told me to go ahead just with Jody. I'm sad she couldn't make it, and I've invited her to do a makeup sometime soon. The essays collected in the book are mostly out of print and or hard to find, and bringing them back into print is a great public service. They're sharp and inspiring. Jody Dean is a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Before we get into the content of the the collection, uh, Jody, give us a general idea of the publication history of these texts. Were they largely lost or forgotten? Um, How were they rediscovered? So the book came together during COVID, but Sharice and I had had the idea for it beforehand um, because I taught a course on socialist feminism, and one of my students was looking for a text from Louise Thompson and couldn't find it. And I assumed that this was just terrible student research skills. So I call Sharice, who has the most amazing archive of mid-century black communist work and she assumed that she had it and then she didn't have it and so then Cherie starts asking around and nobody really nobody had it so then we realized okay this is a scandal this is ridiculous like we need to bring together all of the different writings from the black women in around the in and around the communist party um, mid-century so all of them weren't lost carol boyce davies who's the biographer of Claudia Jones has a collection of Claudia Jones's writings. Um, So those have been present, but altogether, these writings haven't been present. Lost is is kind of hard to say. It's like um, if people aren't willing to go into archives, then they're lost. So they haven't been present um, and really available for scholars. Like there's really great secondary work by Deo Gore and Eric McDuffie that talks about um, the radical activism of Black women in and around the Communist Party, but the primary texts haven't been available. So we decided to make them available so that you know, anyone can find them, and also, also so that the women can um, speak for themselves. And to that end, I'll um, mention the names. I'll read off the names of the women that we've collected in Organized Fight Win. Grace Campbell, Williana Burroughs, Maud White Katz, Tyra Edwards, Ella Baker, Marvel Cook, Louise Thompson Patterson, Esther Cooper Jackson, Thelma Dale, Claudia Jones, Vicki Garvin, Dorothy Hunton, Lorraine Hansberry, Eslanda Good Robeson, Dorothy Burnham, Avon Gregory, Charlotta Bass, and Alice Childress. And not exactly household names, most of them, but uh, really an impressive uh, group of uh, writers and thinkers and uh, activists. Oh, absolutely. I mean, some are, are well-known, uh, let's say Lorraine Hansberry as a She's playwright. very well-known, yes. Yeah, but people don't know her political writings very well. Some may be familiar with Islanda Good Robeson. She was a major intellectual, 
But after the 60s and 70s, people start to lose um, track. One of the wild things is that a number of these women lived really, really long lives. Like Esther Cooper Jackson, for example, she only died this past September. She was 105. Oh, yeah, I noticed that in the uh, the bios. It was 1915 to date, so she was still alive when this was compiled. And I said, that can't be right. Communism is the key to a long life. Of course, some of them had short lives. I mean, Claudia Jones is, what, 43 or something? Yeah, she had a series of health problems that were exacerbated by her um, harassment by the FBI and then subsequent um, deportation. And so she dies living in the UK. Before we get to the content again, another um, thing I want to deal with is... The image of the Communist Party, it was, you know, a white male entity largely controlled by Moscow puppeteers. Clearly, this is just not at all correct. It's the worst kind of anti-communist propaganda ever. It's just flat out not true. For the one thing that I really hope people listening to this discussion and looking at the book will take away is just a sense of how totally wrong that conception is. It's not like the party begins full blown with hundreds of thousands of people in the United States. Like that's not the way it is. It has to get formed. It has to emerge. And some of the founding members were black people. Some. Um, this is also part of the period of the Harlem Renaissance and the New Negro Movement. And there were a number of exuberant political black people who were involved in the early Socialist Party, and then they become founders of the Workers Party, and then that ultimately converges into the Communist Party. Grace Campbell, for example, um, she's one of the early founders of the Communist Party in the U.S. She had been a founder also of the African Blood Brotherhood with Cyril Briggs. And one of the fascinating things about the African Blood Brotherhood and Briggs himself is their formulation of an independent Black socialist horizon. They recognize the imperative of socialism for anything like black freedom. And so they had this analysis, which is what made them come to converge with the newly forming Communist Party. Also, when you start looking at the um, women organizers, right, they're organizing in Harlem. They're organizing tenants unions. That's what the early Communist Party looks like. It doesn't look like, I don't know, like a bunch of like white bureaucrats just sort of spouting off lines from Moscow. These contributions are um, not just concerned with black issues, of course they are concerned with black issues, or women's issues, of course they're concerned with that, or U.S. issues. I mean, the breadth of interest and the internationalism are really um, throughout the book. Oh, the internationalism is absolutely crucial. People are kind of blinded to the way or ignorant of the way that black radicals and intellectuals were traveling. They were going um, to Europe. They're going to the Soviet Union, traveling in Africa, connecting the struggles, actively involved in building an anti-imperialism and an internationalism that's completely cognizant of the way that revolutionary struggles are unfolding everywhere and the way they can inspire each other. What did they bring home from those um, international studies? I want to emphasize a couple of things. One of the crucial things that they bring back from their international travels and studies is an understanding of the importance of building unity, of the importance of building organizations, of fighting together. Like As Black women in and around the Communist Party see other revolutions unfolding, as they see struggles going on in Africa, as they see the um, revolution in China, they are inspired in ways that let them advocate for building revolutionary organizations in the United States. So there's a sense of the of the importance of organization and the need to build unity. There's also some really concrete things like, oh, here in Egypt, there's a brigade of 250 guerrilla women who are taking up arms. Like, that's really inspiring to learn about. They also learn about the the kind of global nature of U.S. imperialism and the way that white supremacy functions as part of U.S. imperialism, because they see it globally. And then they can bring this back and tell people in the U.S., guess what? The United States is not the leader in the struggle for democracy. The United States is operating according to the same kinds of white supremacist, fascistic ideologies that we allegedly have fought World War II in order to contest. They see like the spread of U.S. kind of white supremacy and um, imperialism around the world, and they see the incredible fight back. Right? So they see, they see patterns of oppression and patterns of resistance. 
And one of the themes is uh, the challenges of organizing black women. They're largely employed as domestics or in agriculture. That dispersion presents challenges that organizing, say, urban factory workers didn't. How do they think about that and deal with it? It made them have to be really creative. We've got some um, reports that Williana Burroughs gave in the common turn in the 1930s. These have never been published before. And one of the things that's really exciting about these reports from Willie Anna Burroughs is how broadly she thinks about organizing class struggles. So if you're going to reach agricultural and domestic workers, what are the different things that you can do? You can form newspapers that speak directly to their interest. You can focus on schools and education. You can focus on living conditions, like the conditions of terrible, terrible housing, the conditions of lack of quality water, lack of playgrounds and parks. So they start to recognize, you know, because they have to in order to reach these women, um, they have to recognize that you can't just take for granted that what their interests are or where they are, you have to build that. And so they think much more creatively about what working class struggle looks like. Another theme is how to handle race. Um, They didn't want to antagonize white workers, although certainly um, the black workers are getting a lot rawer deal than their white uh, colleagues were. Uh, The whites themselves are very varied, different immigrant populations. How do you forge some kind of class unity among such a disparate crew? The key idea for the Communist Party at the time was the Black Belt thesis or the right of self-determination for Black people living in the Black Belt. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this and explain how this works out. So this Black Belt thesis or Black Belt Nation thesis held that there's a whole bunch, I don't remember the number of counties, like 10 to 15 counties that spread across like the the Delta, Mississippi Delta area from like Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina that are majority black and that they can by objective criteria be understood as a nation and that black people in the United States constitute an oppressed national minority, not simply racial oppression, but national oppression. This Black Belt thesis was thought for by a um, black American communist Harry Haywood. It was contested um, within the party. It was it was a challenging idea, but ultimately the common turn agrees with this. And so this becomes the basic principle of the party, that the struggle for black self-determination is a objectively revolutionary struggle, and it's a national struggle. This was important for organizing white people organizing white workers, because what it said was that the struggle of black people was equally revolutionary. It wasn't a secondary struggle. It was an objectively revolutionary struggle for national self-determination. And so white workers then had to be willing to die for the black struggle. And this became the grounds of equality. The black struggle was an important, crucial, necessary revolutionary struggle. And it had the same crucial nature as the class struggle. These couldn't be separated. They had to be built. They had to be built together. And white people as well as black people had the obligation to defend it. The premise of it builds a kind of unity based in equality. I'm speaking with the political scientist Jody Dean, co-editor along with Cherise Burden-Stelly of Organize, Fight, Win, Black Communist Women's Political Writings, just out from Verso. Okay, let's talk about some of the specific contributions. Ella Baker and Marvel Cook have a piece called The Bronx Slave Market, uh, and they present lower middle and working class white women as exploiters trying to get domestic help as cheaply as they could. Talk about that uh, that chapter a bit. Yeah, this chapter's wild. Ella Baker and Marvel Cook kind of went undercover as women seeking an employment for the day in the households of low-income white people. This is a depression era um, phenomenon, though they you know it lasts for quite a while and it comes you know in and out. But the domestic workers would um, congregate in two particular corners of the Bronx, just waiting for someone to come and employ them. What usually happened is that the white women would try to negotiate their prices as low as possible or the pay for the domestic labor was try to just bring the wages down as far as they could. And then after the black women would get to the apartments um, to clean, um, they would you know, maybe be given lunch and then charged for it, or they wouldn't be given transportation fare 
or the hours would be stretched out really long. And it's like, oh, redo this, redo that. They're also um, typically subjected to sexual harassment and molestation by the husbands and sons of the women who've employed them. So it's really horrible, really horrible working conditions and like a direct extension of the slave experience on the plantation now into the apartments of middle-class and lower middle-class white people in the Bronx. But what's so, to my mind, like so important and inspiring and great about this essay on the Bronx slave market is how Cook and Baker make this not something like they don't say, oh, the solution's going to be sisterhood between the exploiters and the ex- exploited or anything like that. They say, look, this is a microcosm of the experience of any labor market. And as a microcosm of the experience of any labor market, what do we learn? We learn that the solution to the problem is going to be in the unity of the workers. And in fact, in their experience talking with the domestic day laborers, they found that the women had actually come to agreements with one another. Okay, none of us will let our wages go lower than a certain amount, right? We have to set our wages ourselves because if not, they're going to make the competition against each other drive us all to ruin. So they see uh, the power of a unified approach, the power of a union, and the necessity of working together in order to stop the bosses from like essentially immiserating them. Marvel Cook has an essay on Thyra Edwards, vivacious and vital. She went to Paris and didn't return with Chanel, but what did she return with uh, from her European visit? I love that title. It's so. It's, it's really so, very charming. Yes, it's so charming, and it makes you really think of this like sort of like dashing young black woman, like with like shopping bags or something like that. But instead, we're to um, see a dashing, vibrant young revolutionary who has visited Europe in the early '30s and the unfolding of fascism, particularly in Spain and Germany, and then who also goes to the Soviet Union and sees the incredible contrast between what's happening in Germany and Spain and what's going on in the Soviet Union. Because what she sees in the Soviet Union is a racial equality that she'd never seen before, as well as women's equality. So what's astounding and what they present, because Tyra Edwards goes on then um, goes on a lecture tour to talk about experiences, is the emancipatory potential of what's going on in the Soviet Union at the time, in contrast to, to the descent of Europe into fascism. Tyra Edwards is not the only young Black woman um, in and around the U.S. Communist Party at the time to go to the Soviet Union. Uh, Louise Thompson Patterson also went to the Soviet Union, and Williana Burroughs went, and she was so impressed that she had her brought her sons there. Her sons were educated in the Soviet Union because she wanted them to grow up in a society that wasn't racist. And then she ultimately ends up working for um, a number of years for Radio Moscow. I bet you know a lot of Americans would hear that and say, well, they were just dupes of Stalinism. They didn't know the brutality that was underlying this fake exterior. Which part is the fake and which part is the real? I mean, if their experience of race, of being a woman, of being a black woman is so much better in one society, namely the Soviet Union, than it was in the United States, that shouldn't be discounted. Right? It's almost as if the treatment of the excesses of the Stalin period becomes an excuse for ignoring the realities of Jim Crow and lynching and racism in the United States during this period. I always want to remind our imagined and real interlocutors on this that it was during the period of the worst Stalin excesses that the U.S. and the Soviet Union were allies. So I'm not quite sure exactly who's duping whom. World War II brought some advantages for black workers, both men and women. Tight labor markets, war production, black soldiers got exposed to a whole different world, changed them when they came back. But then the post-war demobilization and the transformation of the U.S. into the world's unchallenged imperial master brought about a whole uh, fresh array of challenges. Uh, Claudia Jones writes about this at uh, some length. Um, Could you talk about the effects of the war and then the demobilization on black Americans? This is a really rich topic, and as uh, Claudia Jones talks about it, as you mentioned, and also Thelma Dale um, has a discussion of reconversion. So for both of them, what's really important about the experience for 
black workers uh, in general and black women workers um, specifically during World War II is that they get access to really good industry jobs. So they get training, they get higher wage jobs. Affiliated with those jobs was also government provided childcare, which was available for all factory workers. And so they get access that they didn't have before. With the end of the war, by the kind of old principle of last hired, first fired, they lose their jobs, so they get pushed back into domestic labor. Um, And one of the reasons that they get pushed back into domestic labor is Black men are also losing their jobs, and it's easier for the Black women to get the domestic labor jobs than it is for Black men to get a sort of decently waged factory job because everyone's getting pushed out. So we have this workplace problem now that's occasioned by um, reconversion and also industry's interest in driving down wages. And so the more you can have this reserve army of black people, this is going to exert a downward pressure on wages. One of the things that Claudia Jones emphasizes is what she calls the kind of Hitlerite ideology that's driving this. And this is the Kinder, Kirche, Kuche, you know, children, church, and um, kitchen ideology. This is what we fought against. The whole the, the U.S. was supposed to be opposed to fascism, opposed to Hitler, and this very same ideology is now being used to hurt black women and to hurt all women. It's a fomenting of sex division by the bosses designed to hurt wages and to force women back into domesticity. So it hurts the entire working class with wages, it hurts women specifically, and it hurts black people specifically. The um, book ends with the rise of McCarthyism, breaking up the Communist Party uh, and purging the unions and all kinds of nastiness. Um, Talk about the effects of uh, McCarthyism on uh, the politics of of the CP, but also (laughs) the effects in the broad society here. Totally damaging to the Communist Party. 11 or 12 leaders are prosecuted in the Smith Acts. Um, A number of them serve over a decade in jail. Claudia Jones is deported. There are attacks on on a whole slew of black leaders of radical organizations. Alpheus Hunton, he was the head of the um, Congress on African Affairs. He does jail time. This hurts this work that um, in support of anti-colonial struggles in Africa. He and his wife were um, also in in the party, and she writes movingly about his jail time. So McCarthyism has this horrible effect on the struggles around securing basic black rights, right? Securing the um, voting rights, fighting against lynching, fighting against segregation. So it wasn't just about getting rid of reds. Because of the deep, close connection of the communist with the um, struggle of black people for freedom and for the basic rights that they were supposed to have been guaranteed with the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, all black leaders start to seem in kind of the in this McCarthyite mindset as subversives, as anti-American. The securing of democracy ends up being a fight against black people as well as a fight against communists. And I'll, I'll put in a plug here for um, Charisse. It's um, a shame she couldn't be with us today. Her work on this is really exceptional. Right? She um, talks a lot about the way that McCarthyism functioned as a kind of anti-Blackness and as a real attack on Black-white unity and on Black radical leaders. And I got to say, from the point of view of the American ruling class, they knew what they were doing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this the McCarthy era has major effects on the ability to make Black-white unity a ground of class struggle. Right? And this is what the communists were doing. The fight for Black liberation wasn't separate from the working class struggle. It was a ground of working class struggle. The class struggle was ne- it was necessary for Black people because they're Black workers, and it was necessary for Black liberation to get rid of capitalism because capitalism is the mode that they're being is the vehicle for their oppression. And the McCarthy era eliminates this it may, or it's a kind of defeat for a while that makes it very very difficult to recognize that these are one struggle and uh finally any lessons uh from this period roughly the late 20s into the early 50s uh for today 
Yeah, I'm going to have first a not super um, fancy uh, lesson. And the one lesson, one of this is that Kamala Harris is not the first black woman to be the vice presidential candidate on a major party ticket. That honor belongs to uh, Charlotta Bass, who is the editor of the California Eagle and a black woman in and around the, I mean, she wasn't in the Communist Party, but she was in the um, the larger milieu. She was a member of the Sojourners for Truth and Justice and was also investigated by one of the un-American committees on un-American activities. So the, the first les- lesson is recognize that Kamala Harris is not the first. The larger lesson is the importance of organization. It's such a kind of cliche on the contemporary left that people have to be independent, self-organized, skeptical of the party, even skeptical of unions. And what these women were committed to was organization, whether or not that was in the party or in groups with close affiliations to the party. Even when they're critical, they're critical within the party. And one of the things I I hope people will notice as they look at the book is the number of publications from party magazines like Political Affairs that are critical of the party. Like um, the most famous ones are from Claudia Jones, but there um, there's also one from Louise Thompson Patterson. They're criticizing the party, but they're working within the party. They don't say that because the party is imperfect that they're not going to work in it. The commitment to organization is what follows directly from a commitment to a struggle against capitalism, a struggle against racism and white supremacy, a struggle for women's equality. You have to work through organizations. You can't do it alone. That was Jody Dean, professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York, and co-editor, along with Sharice Burden-Stelly, of Organized Fight Win, a collection of black communist women's writings from the late 1920s through the early 1950s. As I said in the intro, Sharice Burden-Stelly was supposed to do the interview along with Jody, but sickness made that impossible. I hope we can hear from her soon. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, the opening of Frederick Zhevsky's set of variations on The People United Can Never Be Defeated, a song written by Sergio Ortega that emerged from the Allende movement in Chile in the early 1970s. It's performed by Igor Levitt. Till next week, bye. <laughs>